I've spoken in the past on several different occasions about the subject of forgiveness and maybe even specifically this aspect of forgiveness that I want to talk with you about today. We've even discussed it in Bible classes. It's one of those subjects like what happens after we die that people can't seem to get enough of a discussion about because it comes up all the time. And uh, in this case, ironically enough, I was prompted to think about this some more and, and do this lesson because of a question that came to me on one of my poultry chat groups. It says people that I know from around the country on poult- about poultry. Fellow said, a fellow just threw that bone right out there and said, any of you Bible scholars, I have a question in a poultry group. So naturally, I took the bait. No, I said, well... Here, here's what he he was asking about this question of should we forgive somebody seventy times seven? Does the Lord require us to forgive someone four hundred and ninety times? And more or less, what happens on the four hundred and ninety first time that God that they do something wrong? I guess he's got a good record keeper keeping a record book, but I don't know if that was the intent of the question. But that's the gist of it, and so I gave a gave a short answer, which seemed to please him and some other people who were who were um, curious about it. And so I thought I'd talk about a little bit about this, and I want to focus, although there are so many passages that focus directly or indirectly on the subject of forgiveness in the Bible. That's really one of the main themes of the entire Bible is forgiveness. I mean, if you want to know what the Bible is about, the Bible is about forgiveness which implies sin and judgment. And so you've got a lot of subjects that all run together in this. But I want to look at this from, from this passage here in Matthew chapter 18 with you. And because I think in looking at in this context, and we won't read the whole chapter. We probably should to start with, but I won't. When you look at from this chapter, you'll see, I think, some seemingly unconnected things that Jesus says that I think all relate to forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of, a, a lot of other scriptures that can be brought to bear on this subject. And I am not saying that the, this is, these are the only principles at play. We might talk some more about this next week because I've got another whole set of uh, principles that I that didn't even put up here today because I knew we would never have time to discuss them. But this isn't the only thing that could be said about this at all. I'm not saying that, but I think that these are important things to consider, uh, especially in our day and time. Now, the first aspect that Jesus, and I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I usually do. Usually I would read these scriptures and then we talk about them. Today we're going to throw out a principle and then we're going to talk about it, read the scripture. So bear in mind the different approach perhaps. But when you go to this passage in in Matthew 18, I think one of the subjects that pops up first in the discussion of forgiveness is humility. It's not where we would start, but I think it's where this passage starts in talking about forgiveness. For there to be actual forgiveness for anything, there has to be humility somewhere in the process, in the equation. There either has to be humility on the part of the person who's done the sinning and realizing that I've sinned against someone or or God and have to be humble enough to openly admit that, or there has to be humility on the part of the one who's been sinned against, who's been offended or affronted. And they have to have the humility to deal with this situation properly. They both go together, of course, 
And for true, what God truly wants to happen will only happen if both parties in the dispute or the disagreement or the sin have humility. Humility is the key to the whole thing. And that's why Jesus starts out this discussion. It doesn't seem like it, but I think he's leading somewhere in this discussion here in Matthew, and where he says in verse 1 of Matthew 18, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. So imagine you're that little child, or you're the parents of this little child in the audience, and Jesus just stopped and says, Come up here, come here, little kid. I don't know if he held out a piece of candy like I have to to get him to come to me or not. You know, but uh, anyway, so this little child comes up and he puts the child there, set him in the midst there and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to have to sit on this stool. I'm sorry, but I have re-injured my back somehow. I think it was trying to help Judy and do chores and stuff, and she's just broken me down. But any event, I've re-hurt my back and and I'm going to have to sit. Ooh, it's almost instant relief. But in any event, is this too, um, is this too informal? Anyway, so um, unless you become like a little child, you know, spoiled, bratty, whiny, selfish, um, disruptive, you know, like little children. What does he mean here? A little children have a lot. Don't, don't little children have a lot of different characteristics? They do. So you can't just say a child and then pick out whatever characteristic you want of a child. You have to look at what it says here. And he tells you the characteristic that he's talking about. Although they have many other things that are, that make children, because other passages say, stop doing childish things. When I was a child, I acted as a child, but now I put away. Well, now Paul seems to condemn children as being childish. Well, of course they're childish. They're children. But Paul, Jesus here, elevates children in the aspect of humility because he says therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the grace in the kingdom of heaven now i won't even tell you that all little children are humble in that true sense because some of them are very selfish very self-oriented and so forth but generally speaking children are not they're just there they enjoy what's there they enjoy life they are happy in a general way with everybody around them. They don't see class and order and structure. They, they don't see the things that we judge others by. And so we spend our time trying to, uh, you know, please people who are wealthier than us or more powerful than us. We spend our time trying to uh, move up in the world by the way we dress or we act. Children aren't like that. They don't care. And that's what he means by humility here. Unless you're willing to look at yourself properly and keep in mind who you are, evaluate yourself correctly, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the problem. I'll, okay, it's always been a problem, but today I'm going to lay out a problem, a problem that's particularly true of the generation around us, and that is the selfie generation. The idea that I spend my day trying to think of how I look best, and then I make sure that I get a picture of that, you know. Make sure I got my hand on my hip and pouty lips and take a picture of myself. Make sure I get my cleavage in there so I can send it out to the world 
And this is the way I live my life. Selfie generation. And we begin, we always are looking in some way in this generation to make sure we get pleased. This pleased me, this didn't please me. We complain all across the internet if a server doesn't bring our water properly or something happens, you know, in some restaurant, some serve, some store, something. We start complaining and putting that person down and didn't happen this way. My fries were cold and all that kind of stuff. What's that all about? What's it all about? It's about selfishness, it's about self. He says, unless you become as a little child, humble yourself, you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'll tell you, when something goes wrong, this is where you begin to see humility. Humility might be hard to spot in someone when things are all going well. But when things go wrong, you'll begin to see in a crowd who has who has humility and who doesn't when things go badly. Because the proud people will act a different way than the humble people. You know, start noticing this around you when you see something happen in your family, other places, in a family gathering. Things don't go as planned. Something happens that's disruptive. Notice who reacts how, and you'll begin to see the humble and the proud sort themselves out. So, you have to become humble, willing to look at the other person properly. Humility, then, is evaluating yourself properly in the order of things. It's not thinking too highly of yourself. But the selfie generation, that's built in. That's just what they're built to do, is think highly of themselves, make sure they photograph it and document it, of where they are. And if they're not, then they just don't, you know, they have to almost invent something to be better than other people. This was true of my generation. It's true of the generations in between that this, these are the way people are. Now, that kind of person is never going to seek or grant forgiveness. At least they aren't going to do so very easily. They're not going to seek forgiveness from other people and they're not going to grant forgiveness very easily. Because they think too highly of themselves. Now, the other thing that he says in this chapter is that we must avoid sin and avoid causing sin. Another foreign concept in the modern world, two foreign concepts already now, that's a total of three, before Jesus even hardly begins this passage, that are foreign to the culture that we live in and the way things are that must be dismantled. We must avoid sin People are not careful about avoiding sin. They scorn you if they think you're the kind of person that's, or they call you a Puritan or uh, other things like that. They call you, uh, uh, just spread something this morning. What they, what they name, they, what they call this person who is being careful about whether they did something wrong or not. I don't know, some kind of, what they viewed as a slander against the person because they were careful about whether they were doing something wrong or not or going to do something wrong. And they got called names. That's the way it is. And you avoid causing sin in others. You avoid doing things that will cause another person to sin. Because the Bible is very clear. Culture doesn't believe this, but the Bible is very clear. We can cause other people to sin. Oh, no, everybody's by themselves. No, you can cause other people to sin. You can influence them to sin by what you do. And we don't like this because, once again, we want to be autonomous. We want to be ourselves. We want to be able to do whatever we want. And we do not want the charge ever made against us that what I did caused that person to sin. Jesus doesn't give you that room. He doesn't give you the room to say you can do whatever you want and no, and then and everybody else just has to, uh, you know, 
go along. They're, we're, we're often like the boats on the intercoastal or in, over here in the river. There's signs up around some, down around Stewart, some of these expensive places. You got signs up, no wake, no wake, no wake, and they enforce this very strictly down there because boats will come flying through there, or they should enforce it anyway. And they're having fun. They're all having a party on the boat. Might even have their Bud Light flowing on that boat, you know, go out there having a party. And they come tearing through the intercoastal, and the weight that they cause from their actions destroys property and boats and things all along the shoreline. Are they aware of that? Nah, not necessarily. They're focused on the fun they're having. But their life, their actions are leaving destruction around them. And that's the way people live. This is not humility, and it doesn't lead to forgiveness of any kind. Notice what he says. Here's what Jesus says, why, why I'm saying that's a principle. See if you think these verses reflect that principle that we must avoid sin and avoid causing sin. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, we can argue about whether he's talking about actual little children or whether he is uh, talking about little immature Christians, as it were, or people who are easily led astray. It doesn't matter. He's talking about people who are easily influenced by others around them, whether they're grown-ups or not. You gotta be careful about that when you let, when your behavior is such that it would cause one of these immature, unstable little ones to stumble. You can cause other people to sin. Therefore, you must avoid sin yourself. Now, this, I don't mean this to be self-serving, but that, that's one of the reasons that I don't drink or smoke grass. Not because, well, I mean, they're about the same, aren't they? There's some evidence that actually marijuana is more dangerous than drinking. That's the new evidence coming out. But look, there's a difference between using things medicinally and using them for intoxication, for recreation. The Bible is clear about that. We can talk about another subject. But one reason I don't drink, not because I think you're a sinner if you ever have one little drink of alcohol. I don't think you should be intoxicated for sure. I don't drink because I don't intend to influence anybody around me to sin and to do wrong. That's why I don't do that. I don't want to even have that excuse that I saw the preacher drinking and so therefore I can drink. It's not good. It never leads anywhere good for almost everybody involved in it. It hardly ever leads to anything good. And so I'm not going to be involved in it. Now, you say, well, that's your personal choice. Okay, but I apply this principle. I'm not going to cause people to sin if I can help it. So our actions ought to reflect that principle. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to cause anybody else to sin. Now, you, you can do what you do with regard to alcohol or other things like that on your own. You, you'll be responsible for one way or another for that. And there are ways that you can probably live a Christian life and not live like me about that. But the point is, he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble who believe in me to sin or to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. You just be a millstone is a big rock they used to put on a round, kind of a flat stone. 
they put it down on a big flat surface, put grain there. Animal would turn it or a person would turn the millstone. It would grind up the grain, break off the hulls, and that's what they used the mill. In other words, it's something if you put it on your neck and threw you in the sea, you, you know, you're not coming out. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom that offense comes. An offense is not displeasing somebody. When we say, well, that offended me. That's the modern usage of that word means that upset me. It upset me when you said that. But an offense here is not just being upset. So um, I don't like it when people say bad things about the Miami Dolphins. Okay. It offends me. All right. Is it a sin? Well, it's close, but I mean, I can't really say, I can't really say if it is or not, but no, it's just make, that's the way we use it, offend. I don't like that. But the word used here means causes somebody to literally stumble or fall. The word that's used in the Greek is skandalia, like scandal. And what it referred to in the original, almost all these words have literal meanings that are transferred to a metaphorical sense. It's the trigger on a trap. I've told you before. My grandfather, a carpenter, he he was an old country man. He we want me and my brothers always wanted to catch rabbits up there in Ohio. So we would build he'd help us build a trap, you know, with wire in this end and a gate on the other moving down. And then there's a special all of it's pretty simple. A lever, except that trigger which had to be carved a certain way so that it would it would move and let the trap fall. Me and our clumsy attempt at the trigger didn't work. It would take, you know, a horse reaching in there to knock the trigger loose, or it was so loose, a little breeze came along, it would but he would carve them so that they were just right. That piece of that trap, that's the trigger of it, the mechanism that sets the trap, is the scandalia in Greek. It's the trigger. So he says here. Woe if you're the one that triggers a sin in someone else. If you're the one that causes them to stumble or to be trapped, to be tricked. And so we can behave and we can act in such a way that we can cause somebody else to sin by our behavior. Oh, aren't they responsible? Yes. And that's exactly the point. See, we do this, well, if they're guilty, I must be innocent. Or if I'm guilty, they must be innocent thing. Couple, I've told before, in marriage, you come in, they got problems in marriage, and one of them will say, well, my husband does this. And what they mean by that is, since my husband did that, I must be pure as the driven snow. Or since my wife said this, the husband puts it out there, and he wants me to conclude, since his, since the wife said that, he must be innocent. Is that the way it works? Well, it never works like that. I say never, but close. All right. Just because one person is guilty doesn't mean the other person can't be guilty. Maybe guilty of different things for different reasons. But husbands and wives do this all the time. They can cause each other to sin by their behavior. They can, well, what's our common expression? I know how to push his buttons. Well, what in the world does that mean? I know how to push his buttons. It means you know how to cause him to sin, to do things that will give you the advantage in the relationship because you pushed his buttons and he reacted and people condemned that and so therefore you are, you become innocent. This is the game that we play in marriage and we play it in a lot of relationships. He says here, 
You better be careful as a Christian going around acting in such a way with other people that you cause these offenses and cause this stumbling and cause this sin because you will both be lost. You'll be lost because you cause that person to sin which causes them to be lost. So both of you are going to be lost when you do this. This is the hard news for our generation to think about because it's very common and we have a lot of euphemisms to excuse this behavior. What's this got to do with forgiveness? Well, for one thing, if we wouldn't go around causing people to sin and if we would avoid sin ourselves, there'd be a lot less to be forgiven, wouldn't there? We'd have a lot less of these things that have to be ironed out between people that cause these difficulties in families and extended families and places of work and everywhere else. There'll be a lot less of that if we would be concerned about our behavior and how we talk to people and how we treat people and what we do with them because we were concerned about causing them to sin or sinning against them, we would there'd be a lot less of it. And that's why Jesus says next if your verse eight, if your hand or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life maim or uh, lame or maimed than rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye cause you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. And so he says sin is extremely destructive. We need to take it seriously. Do not cause people to sin and do not sin yourself. So the Christian should be with radar out about this as they live, how they influence others and what they can do. Now, some things that you do, are going to influence someone to do wrong, and there's not much you can do about it. But you better be cautious about that and aware of your influence on others. Don't have the modern idea that what I do is my business and doesn't bother anybody else. That's not a biblical idea, that what I do is my business and doesn't affect anybody else. It does, always. Whatever you do, it affects other people. And it particularly affects the little ones, what you do. That's what it affects. You think it's okay. I, I, I don't, I'm gonna, I can get drunk every weekend. I stay home. I don't go driving. So, cause the only way you can sin if you're drinking is if you're driving, right? That's how that works. You know, it's funny. When me and Judy were working with the drug task force up in Illinois in the county we lived in, I was the president of the drug task force for a while. Boy, that's such an important position, right, Judy? Anyway, um, one, one of our things we tried to work on, there was just a few of us. Well, there was a lot of us at one time until you-know-who wanted to have a campaign or some advertising about drinking and driving. I thought that'd be an obvious, since it was a drug task force, and the biggest drug problem that that little county had was drinking. It wasn't cocaine. They were worried about all the cocaine coming from Miami to Illinois. That wasn't a problem. They, what the problem they had was teenagers killing each other on the highways when drinking. That was the problem they had. But they didn't want to deal with that because the objection was raised and basically overruled whatever I want to do. You can't condemn drinking and driving. You could only condemn drunk driving, which of course is pretty hard to define. And so what happened was, and in discussion of that issue, the whole thing got dropped because you just can't talk about alcohol. Just can't talk about alcohol. But you can get real worked up over 
all the other drugs. Okay, never mind. Number one drug problem in the United States of America is not fentanyl. It's alcohol. Number one drug problem. No one ever wants to. Well, you can't legislate morality, can you? Prohibition was a failure. Go look up the numbers. But that's another whole subject. In any event, he says here, you can influence people. So you think you can go get drunk all weekend, stay that way. Does that affect anybody? Oh, it's my business. What about all the young people around you, nieces, nephews, neighbors? Who, who, what are you doing to them? What are you saying to them? Saying something bad. All right, another principle of forgiveness. Try to clear up sin every way we can. Something else not practiced in our society. Trying to clear up sin. We like to amplify sin to score social media points. We want to score our little, do our little virtue signaling by amplifying people's sins, by magnifying their sins, by exaggerating their sins, and making sure their sins get to be known as widely as possible. We don't want to really clear them up. We just want to use them for our own advantage. This is how people act individually. Now as a culture, this is what's come to us. They act in such a way that they, when someone else sins, it gets viewed kind of as a, a, an opportunity for you. When someone else does something stupid or says something foolish or hurtful or wrong, we kind of like that oftentimes because that gives us an opportunity to, be, to virtue signal how great we are. It gives us a chance to be superior. There's the humility again from point one. Now we're back to this again. But no, Jesus says the Christian, their approach to sin in life is to try to clear up sin wherever they see it. There's a problem between two people. They try to, Between them and somebody else, they try to clear it up as quickly and as well as they can. There's a problem between two friends of theirs. They may oftentimes try to be a peacemaker between the two. Blessed are the peacemakers because they can bring harmony. They try to do this. What do you get for that? Usually a black eye. But that's what Jesus says to do about sin. Here's, here's what he says about it. Let's just read what he says. Uh, now, we skipped over a part of this parable here uh, in this chapter. Hang on. Make sure I'm telling you the right thing because I believe we did. Um, yeah, about the lost sheep. I should have put that in there. About going, Jesus says, here's a man has 99 sheep and one of them's missing. He goes out and spends time looking for the one. What's that about? Well, that's about that God cares about sinners. That's what it's about. God cares about sin. And he's willing to go out and find the, the one. You should be willing to clear up sin too. So you, I skip left those verses out. But look at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So here's a process. I don't know what you want to call it, procedure, process, order. It's certainly something. It certainly means something. People try to dismiss this. Because I can't put a word. Is it a procedure? Is it a process? How how do you apply it? Look, you and I might not ever be able to agree how to apply this exactly. But I'm going to tell you something. You need to you need to pay, and I need to understand it. It means something. So spend your time. If you don't like my interpretation, get your own. If I don't like yours, I need to have my own. What this verse means for me to do and for you to do. This verse means something. And so it means. 
If someone does something wrong against me, I don't run to Facebook or Instagram or wherever else I'm going to put it and put that on there first. That's not what I do. That's that's wrong. The first thing I do is go tell him his fault between him and me alone. There's the key word, alone. How many people do this? How widespread is this practice in common society and families and churches? Not very, I can tell you, after many years of preaching. Not very. Because the first thing that we want to do is tell other people about what we've, what's happened. And today we have the means to do that very effectively to tell lots of people. I, I, I saw, I saw, <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know why I do this. It's like beating head on. I'm on the next door app. It's like torment for me. It's torment for me to think, what kind of people am I living among? In this area. What kind of people? I just say they all moved down from up north. That's my only answer for it. It can't be, that can't be true, but it seems like that. That's my, that's what I put back on there. They're complaining about restaurants serving the food late. As you know, up north, they always serve the re- food on time in restaurants. That's what I put on there every time. Anyway, up north, they don't do that. My dog got lost. Up north, all the dogs don't, no dogs get lost up north. Didn't you know that? It's a wonderful paradise. That's what I put on there. But anyway, uh, so I'm either lo- I get lots of love or lots of hate. Either way, it's fun. So somebody puts on there last night. I haven't seen the results. It says, um, "Couple boys stole my bicycle from the blah 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 Harbor Bay Club or something." One of them is named Tony So and So, and the other one's name is Joe So and So. Puts it on Facebook. I mean, next door at which is goes to everybody in the area. I showed Judy. I was laying there. I'm getting ready to go to sleep, and I'm reading this, and I just started chuckling. And I showed Judy. I said, well, "What's going to happen with this? This ought to be good because this is a slander and libel. It's a legal issue now. When you say that these boys stole my bike and you put their names on this public forum." And I thought to myself, you know, I was thinking about this sermon. So I wonder if they actually talked to these boys and said, tried to fix this problem. <laughs> of course they didn't. Their first recourse was to put it on a public forum because that's what we do. Gary and I have a principle, whether we live by it or not. I, I think I talked him into this. No, he believes the same thing I do about this. We have a principle we use around here, whether it, it, it has its good and bad points. It, it's hard to do. When there's a problem... If I'm wrong about this, Gary, you correct me. We try to keep it as small as we can for as long as we can. Is that, that, that's kind of what we try to do, right? From the very beginning of being elders, that's been our stated policy. We try to keep problems as small as we can for as long as we can. Now, I think that fits this verse. Does it work out? Not always. Sometimes it makes us look like we don't care and don't do anything. Negligence and patience are very close brothers. Negligence and patience are cousins, aren't they? So we understand that. But this problem is sa- this problem is saying keep it small if you can. Yes, sir. Sometimes it gets out before we get control. It does. It gets out because people then because people's inclination is to tell other people that they I've been wronged. Here's the humility again. I've been wronged. Everybody needs to know that I've been wronged. And so we go there. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't times when everybody needs to know this person did this, and I have no problem. That This verse says that. Once you do what you can do to keep it small and fix it, then it says tell it to the church, right? So there's a place for public uh, uh, knowledge about things. And then sometimes things get out without people are doing the best, but, but secrets are hard to keep, people. Life experience has shown me secrets are very hard to keep. They hardly ever get, get kept. For length, that's why I don't believe in multi-generational conspiracies. Since the 1400s, there's been a great conspiracy. And so I, I don't believe that because you can't even keep a secret for 10 years, much less of 300 years. Anyway, he tells you here, keep things small and try to fix the problem. Now, the other verse like this where Jesus in Matthew 5, I don't have it up here, to put it up here, but he says, if you go to offer your gift there at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there, Jesus says, and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So here are the two opposite sides of this. Because people will immediately say, well, they did me wrong. I didn't do anything. They wronged me. All right? Jesus says, it's your turn to go. Here, whose turn is it to go see their brother? Well, the one that's been wronged, your brother sins against you. Somebody did me wrong. My first response is to go see them as best I can and try to fix that if I can. Doesn't work very often, but it does work sometimes. So if you've been wronged, your job is to go to your brother. Jesus in Matthew 5 says... If your brother has wronged you, go and leave your gift and go be reconciled. It's always your turn to go. Don't you just hate that? I hate that. It's always your turn to go. I want to be the other guy's turn to go. I don't want to have to go. Who wants to go talk to somebody about a problem like this? Well, the only people that really want to go are the ones that are going to take some glee in it. They think they can stick the knife in deeper and turn it more, you know. They're going to take some satisfaction out of going. They're going to blow it up and get the chance to call people more names. But everybody else hates going, and you should hate going, but you have to go to fix the problem. That's how you avoid sin and avoid causing sin, and that's how you treat this problem. So, And he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I say, if any of you two agree on any earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them, my father, and this phrase, for where two or three are gathered together in my lane, there I am in the midst of this is all, this is all in the context of solving a dispute among church members or brothers. That passage where two or three are gathered together in my name is not about necessarily the public worship assembly. It's about two or three gathering together to try to solve a problem among brethren. Jesus, I want you to know I'm with you in that. I've been involved in those processes many times. God assured me there that when you go try to straighten out a problem with a brother, I'm with you. I'm on your side in that. Okay, so you need to have that understanding that he's with you when you try to straighten it out. And then he tells, then we're going to lastly, we've got, oh, we're way, oh my goodness. I thought this was going to be a short lesson. What is wrong with me? Forgive others 70 times 7. Peter came to him in the same chapter now. Lord, how often shall I forgive my, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, 
but up to 70 times 7. This is another one of those cases like last week, we talked about Peter, how people take Peter's words and make him a bad guy. Peter wasn't a bad guy. Seven times, and no passage says seven times in a day. How do you forgive somebody seven times in a day? Peter was being very generous here. We can't forgive people one time in a day. I've used this illustration for years. Real quickly here. Uh, let's say, uh, let's say Travis walks up to me. We're having a conversation. He gets mad, falls off and hits me in the jaw and knocks me to the ground. You should pick on somebody your own size, Travis. But anyway, uh, he knocks me to the ground and then a second or two later, he realizes, oh, that was bad. He's a crippled old man. I shouldn't hit him. So he tries to pick me up and dust me off. Oh, Mike, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm sorry. Brushes me off. I'll never let it happen again. And uh, will you forgive me? Yeah. Okay, I'll forgive you. I'm a little suspicious. I'll forgive you. So we go on about our way. A couple hours later, we're doing something else. He gets mad at me again and knocks me to the ground again. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mike. I repent. I'm so sorry. Picks me up, brushes me off. And I say, well, will you forgive me? Uh, okay. That's only two times. Seven times in a day. The seventh time. And he knocks me down, punches me. Tries to pick me up and say he's sorry. What am I going to say to him? Are you kidding me? You know? So Peter was pretty generous about this forgiveness in a day. Seven times. And so Jesus says, well, no, it's really 490 times. 70 times seven. Now people try to make, what I want to talk about in this, and I can't, but time-wise, people try to make this out that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you have an obligation to forgive everybody no matter what they do. They don't have to repent they don't have to apologize. They don't have to make amends. You're just under an obligation to forgive them no matter what because of this verse. I think that's wrong. I think it's incorrect. That's Here's the main reason why, because that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how willing you should be to forgive somebody. That's what he's talking about. How willing. It's not, a real, it's not realistic that he can hurt you 491 times in a day and you forgive him. He's saying you should be willing to do that if your brother repents. If your brother repents. Now we're going to talk about that next week. We don't have time to talk about it now. But this is the message. You should be willing to forgive as many times as it takes, regardless of the outcome. Now I don't have, well, I got to stop. We can't go on to the next part of it because we got to stop. But, uh, I was going to talk about this next parable he tells. This whole chapter is about this subject, you see, in different ways. You need, to, you need to be humble. You're not the most important thing in the world. Other people do make mistakes, and so do you. You need to be ready and willing to stop sinning, to stop causing other people to sin by your behavior. You need to be willing to always take the initiative to make things right with everybody around you, whether they've wronged you or you've wronged them. You need to be the one to go and make things right with people, and you need to be willing to forgive them every time that they they repent. This is not how the world lives, but it's how God demands that you live as a child of God. It's going to take some thinking. It's going to take some changes in your attitude about it, 
because it's not easy to do. The gospel is so challenging down at the gut level if people would really stop dealing in platitudes and think about how it actually works. It's very difficult to do. And I want to encourage you to think about this this morning. We're going to sing this song that Joel has selected now, uh, number 771, Will You Come? Well, that's not true. Steve selected it. Joel's going to lead it. Let's get, let's get the whole uh, full disclosure here. Uh, 771, Will You Come? And we encourage you, if we can help this, you this morning by helping you to repent or seek forgiveness for a wrong or a sin, either against God or someone else, we can do that this morning. If you come down to the front, we'll help you. If you need to be baptized into Christ and seek his, God's forgiveness, come down to the front this morning and become a Christian. Can we help you? Let's stand and sing.